0: Good morning. Usually I beat the kids up here, but they're gone. Good riddance. Way are they here. Uh, someone really got pained by that one. It was just a joke. But I'm sorry, children who are not here but those are watching online. All right, this week we're jumping back into this Advent series. So this year for Advent, we're talking about just this idea of the break it down simply of what Jesus brings. Now, some of us grew up in churches where Advent was a regular thing you know, leading up to Christmas, but there's also a lot of us who grew up in churches that Advent was just something that we thought the high church people did. You know, it was just, it wasn't part of our, our normal worship experience. What Advent is simply said is that it's the four Sundays before Christmas. It's a time of year where the, the universal church, you know, so so this isn't a, a Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, right? The universal church, everyone who believes to Jesus, gathers to wait in expectation and celebration for Christ coming into the world. It's what the Old Testament prophets called Emmanuel, God with us. The idea that heaven is coming down to earth, that he who is clothed in radiance takes on skin and, and flesh and blood and moves into our neighborhood. But the thing that's interesting about the early church and that we've kind of gotten away from is that Advent didn't just remind them and point them to Jesus coming as a baby. Advent, whether you look at the Latin or the Greek, whether you look at Perusia in the Greek or Adventus in the Latin, also signified the return or an arrival. So Advent was, yes, Jesus has come. But Advent was also this reminder that Jesus will come again. If Jesus will come again. And, and what's interesting is Bernard of Clairvaux, who's regarded as one of the, the greatest preachers of all time, looked at this whole Advent thing. And what he said is that when Christ comes as a baby, he comes in the flesh. When Christ comes again in a second, he comes uh, in glory. But he says the, the work of this in between is that Christ comes three times. And this third time he has come as a baby, which is what we celebrate. We look forward to him coming again, but now Christ comes in our hearts. So we celebrate Advent, and to kind of flesh it out for us, we've kind of always held on to these four themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. So this year, when we say we're focused on peace, or we're talking about peace like this Sunday, the question is going to be, what does Jesus bring? How does Jesus bring peace into our world? And then the challenge for all of us as we leave is going to be, how does Jesus bring peace through me to my world? Last week, our brother Cesar shared that when we think about hope that Jesus brings, we must be reminded that it's an invitation, it's a gift, it's communal. This isn't something that we do on our own, but it's something that God invites us into, it's something that God gives to us, and it's something that God expects us to hold on to, not just individually, but as a community. And so when we think about hope, that's how we go forward. So this morning, the challenge is going to be when we think about peace and the peace that Christ brings. Again, we're looking at Advent, uh, I was going to say simultaneously, but it's really three different ways. We're looking at the peace that Christ brings, coming as a child, radiance taken on skin. The peace that Christ brings, yes, when he comes in eternity and he comes in glory, but what is the peace that Christ is bringing today? What is the peace that Christ is asking to be invited into your heart? And how is that peace being gifted to your world around you? If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 11 to 22, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, starting at verse 11. We'll also have it up front for you. Therefore, remember that formerly you were who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier dividing the wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the fire Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that this morning we celebrate our Jesus, our King, our Messiah, our Savior, the God of our peace. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the peace that you bring, that you left heaven to come to earth, that you left radiance to take on skin and to become flesh and, and blood and dwell among us and move into our neighborhood. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in living, you taught us how to live and please God. In teaching, you promised peace. Not just reconciliation with God, but also reconciliation with our world, reconciliation with one another, reconciliation even in ourselves with peace. So Lord, we thank you now that you who bring peace has called us to peace and that the peace that you give us is not to be only held, is not to be hold, uh, held individually, but it's to be shared with our world in every loving act, in every loving word, in all our days. In your holy and precious name, amen. The book of Ephesians is very interesting because um, N.T. Wright calls it the, the London sky. I don't know if you've ever been to London. The London sky is this really, really big Ferris wheel. Think Ferris wheel, except on steroids, right? It's about 440 feet in the air. I saw it, I said, I'm good down here, right? It's really, really high up there. And each, uh, I guess they call it capsules, is big enough that like, it has like 32 people can, can, can sit in it, and, and it takes you about a half hour to go around. And I'm told it's very beautiful. I just trust the pictures. Right. I'm told it's very beautiful, but from up there you can see Central London. You know, you see the old historic buildings, you see the palaces, and you see like uh, Big Ben, the original Big Ben, not the Roethlisberger guy. Like you see the Big Ben, you see Parliament, you see all these things. And I'm told it's very, very beautiful. Again, when I was in London, I said hi to the sky, and I was okay down on the floor. Right. But what's interesting about the sky is when you're up there, again, I've only seen pictures, but the theory is that when you're up there, you not only see the whole city, but you see how it all fits together. And so N.T. Wright says, when you think about the book of Ephesians, right, think of it as the London sky. Because when you go up and you read through Ephesians, and it might take you a half hour to read through the whole book, right? But when you look at the, 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 the book of Ephesians, you'll see that it gives you, just like the London sky gives you a bird's eye view of London, you'll see that Ephesians gives you a bird's eye view and highlights early Christian thought. You'll find thoughts about God, about Jesus, about the church, about salvation, about spiritual warfare, about what it means to be community, about the implications. All of this has on our faith. You may see the familiar, but you might see it from a new view, and you'll see it as how it all fits in. And this is important because when the church starts, it starts at Pentecost. And at Pentecost, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and gives this message. And the message was shalom. The message was shalom. The message was peace. But the message was the gospel, the whole story of Jesus. And in this message, Peter wanted the people to know that God's doing new things in the world, God's doing new things in you, God's doing new things now. God's salvation isn't though just for you, it's also for the world. So when you know the story of Jesus, you know that Jesus left heaven to come to earth. That's not just for Israel, it's for the world. Jesus taught us how to live and love and please God. That's not just for Israel, that's for the world. Jesus died for the world. Jesus was raised for the world. Jesus sent us out for the world. Jesus will come back for the world. And so this message that goes out in Pentecost, and again, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, and you just just read all the different places that the Jews who were gathered on Pentecost were from, you'll see that God had presence already in ancient Mesopotamia, yes. But as far as China and North Africa, all over the known world, that God had people who were a holy remnant. And that's who was taking this message to the world. So the message leads to these people who are called the way. And the way becomes this movement who are called the church. And if you're tracking with us, or you've been with us the last year, you know that we spent a lot of time in Acts. And in Acts, we saw how this message became a movement, became a church, and how this church, God's people, were people who not only began and started, but there are people who are committed to healing, to prayer, to sharing, to shining, to evangelizing, to redeeming, to following, to welcoming, to rescuing, to praising, to connecting, to supporting one another. So Acts then tells you the story. But after you get through Acts, you start with these letters. And these letters like Ephesians are apostles' letters and The early church was not just a movement of house churches, but there were also regional people. So what would happen in these letters is the, the apostles would say that, I want to tell you the story of Jesus, but I also want to tell you how it should impact your life. And these letters were meant to be read. And I think it's interesting that now when we primarily read the epistles. We read them alone and say, what is God saying to me? But these letters were written for public consumption, meaning that the community would have to gather, read it together and say, what is God saying to us? And perhaps that's our first lesson this morning about when we think about God's peace, it's not just about me. It's not just about how I understand what God is saying. It's not just about what God has to say to me. Because here's the news flash. God cares about you. God loves you. But God's plan is not just you. It's the world. So these epistles go out and they're given not only the message or the story of Jesus, but how it's supposed to affect not just your individual life, but us as a community, as a body, as a people, as Christ's household. So when Paul writes Ephesians, he's not just giving us a bird's eye view of early Christian thought. He's actually in prison for his faith. Yet from the prison walls, from the prison bed, he's like, I want you to know this about our Jesus. And our passage is actually the second half of Ephesians chapter two. Now, I know Bible chapters don't have, you know, competitions, but if they did, you know, if you had like, we're, we're Anabaptist, so we don't kill, right? But if you had like a battle to the death of chapters of the Bible, I would wager, I don't even bet, I don't gamble. But if you gamble, just go with me, imagination this morning. But if you were to gamble and bet to say, which is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, I would venture to say that Ephesians chapter two will go very far. And the reason it goes very far is because Paul tells not only the story of Jesus, not only how it affects the world, but Paul tells the story of Jesus by summarizing the human condition, by telling us what we're saved from, who is the one who saves us, and why. He starts off in the first three verses and saying that left to ourselves, we go in the wrong way and think that's right. I think that's so important because this message he wrote thousands of years ago is still true today. And it doesn't mean that oh we're inherently evil, but it does mean that left to yourself, you cannot be saved. Left to yourself, you cannot. You cannot please God. And what Paul actually talks about is that left to ourselves, we're going the wrong way. Remember, we talked about Shuv and this idea of not only repentance, but turning. We're reminded that, yes, we ought to turn the car around. But what Paul starts off with saying in Ephesians 2 is that, like, not only are you going the wrong way, you're intensely going the wrong way. But what makes it even harder is you think that wrong way is right. And Paul attacks this idea that our deep desires, that the desires of our heart, our mind, our body are automatically from God. And this is hard for us in our Western context, right? Because I keep saying this, we are basically children or grandchildren of the Enlightenment. We have taken the human and the person and put them in the center of the universe. And we are now worshiping ourselves. So we live in a culture and a society where what I think matters more than what we think that what God has to say to me matters more than what God has to say to us. We live in a society and culture where it's like, if I think this, or if this is how I am, it matters more than who God is calling me to be. That's the culture we're in. And I find it interesting that that's the same culture the Ephesian church was in that not much has changed even though now we have technology or, or we're so much smarter than we used to be, that we're still in the same decision. We're still in the same situation where we have so centered ourselves that we have become our own gods, that we have become our own lords, that we have become the basis of all truth, that what I say matters more than what God says and Paul actually adds something else to it. He says, not only are we going the wrong way, but we're intentionally doing it and thinking it's right. Not only are we going the wrong way and, and intentionally doing it and thinking it's right, but we think that our deep desires are naturally and automatically from God. If I really feel this way, it must be from God. Paul says, no, no, because our present age isn't just the world is not as it should be, but our present age has a devil that's actually taking what you think is natural thoughts and making them okay. I wanna pause here for a second because I feel like a lot of ways I'm both a child of Africa and a child of the West. And I wanna talk about spirituality a little bit because I think we have both extremes and I think being a child of both, you see both extremes and being a child of both, I do both extremes. In Africa, we spiritualize everything. I wake up in the morning. I'm ready to go to work. I start my car, right? And there's no gas in the car. The devil did it. The devil did it. The devil's making my car not work this morning. Now you might come to me and be like, did you put gas in your car? And I'm like, no, no, no. The devil's trying to hold me down. We over-spiritualize everything. But then when we come to the West, we under-spiritualize everything. We might know cognitively there's a spirit world. We might know cognitively that there's a devil who wants to to destroy you like a roaring lion. We might know cognitively there's spiritual warfare that's going on, but we don't see it. We want to explain everything away. So you have one extreme where everything's the devil, and you have our extreme here in the West where the devil doesn't exist, or the devil is just like, yeah, he's over there somewhere. But what Paul is saying is that when you're going the wrong way, when you're making the base of your existence, just what you think, and that matters most than what the community thinks. And it matters more when what God says. If who you are and your identity is more about yourself than, than who God says you are called to be. Remember, there's more in our scriptures that says deny yourself than there is that says be your best self. The devil says be your best self. Jesus says deny yourself and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. So as we're going through this, this present age is led by the devil. Paul paints this picture of not only darkness, but of death and separation from God. He says, because we're going our own way, because left to our own devices, we can't please God, because we think what is wrong is right, because we think the individual matters more than the community, because we think self matters more than God, because we're led more by the devil than we'd allow ourselves to believe. All we have is death and destruction ahead of us. Then you get to verse four where he says, but God, and I love that, The NIV kind of steals it a little bit because instead of saying, but God, they said, but because of his great love with which he loved us, God. And I think that translation is a little bit missing because the but God stands out. Because what Paul is trying to communicate to his people is that this is what we were. This is what we have to look forward to, but God. And I love that because that's the sermon right there. No matter what you're facing this morning, but God no matter what anxiety that's upon you, but God, no matter what situation you're in, financial or familial, but God, no matter where you are, or how far away you seem, but God. And Paul says that because of his great love, because he's rich in mercy, that though death was our future, Christ in Christ, we are made alive. So death doesn't have to be our future. And then he continues, that we are saved by God through God's grace. That we belong to God through our faith. That we, yes us, are God's handiwork. And there's some translations, and I used to love this, because I like thinking of myself this way, that's just me, right? There's some translation actually uh, translates Ephesians two ten as, for we are God's masterpieces. And some people might think that's an over translation, but I think in a world, In a world where we don't see ourselves the way God sees us, in a world where we think our past is always going to define us, in a world where we think falling short is all that we are, I think we need to be reminded that when God looks at you, he not only sees his beautiful child, But he sees his handiwork, he sees his masterpiece, he sees his creation, that God looks at you and he sees not only Jesus Christ, but he sees the power of his transformation, the power of who you are, the power of who he's called you to be. But God, you're more than your past. But God, you're more than your failures. But God... You are more than falling short. And then he closes that passage by saying, we are called We are called then to do good works. A lot of people pause here and they make it a competition. I, we love to do this. We make it a competition. It's like, but Paul says it's not about works. Yes, works don't save you, but works might show that you are saved because all of us have been, and it's not just an individual call Paul is saying here. He's saying that all of us are God's masterpieces. All of us are God's handiwork. All of us are crafted by God. So your skills, your gifts, your abilities, your personality, your history, all of that is crafted for God, by God, to you, not for you, but for your world. And so the good works that we're called to do isn't just my individual good. We also have to be thinking as, what are we as a family? What are we as a community? How are we bringing good into the world? Because that's what God has created us to do. This is what Paul wanted the Ephesians to know. This is what I want us to know this morning. What has God created us to do? And that's just the first half of chapter two. The second half, our passage this morning, Paul kind of uses that same pattern. What are we saved from? Who is the one that saves us and why? And he starts off this passage by saying, in Christ, we who were far have been brought near. An interesting thing about the Ephesian letter is that most scholars believe that Paul wrote it to us. And what I mean by us is that some of the early Christian leaders would focus on Israel first and saying, let's go to God's people. But the Ephesian church was mostly Gentiles, meaning they were outside the family of Abraham, meaning that they're closer to you and me than they are to the Israelites or the Jewish people. So that Paul is writing to these Gentiles and saying, your story also belongs in God's hands. Your destiny also belongs in God's hands. And you who had no hope you who were so far away, you are part of Christ. And it's interesting that he then continues by saying, basically, we who are unchosen, we who are uncircumcised, we who were, the, the, the word without God is atheos, where we get atheists from. We who are unchosen, uncircumcised, and without God now have a home in Christ. And I think that's a beautiful thing. That when we think about God's salvation for the world, it's not just what God did for me, but that God's plan has always been for the world. And to this church, he says, all of you who are separate from Christ, come home. All of you who are excluded from citizenship in the family of God, who are foreigners to the the covenant promises of the Old Testament, come home. All of you who are without hope, without God, come home. And it's an interesting note about circumcision. We're going to go there. That's why we dismissed the kids. (laughs) It's an interesting note about circumcision. Because there's two things that are wrong with circumcision in this context, theologically, people. Theologically, that's where we are, right? The first one is that the same mistake we make today is what they made, too is that they lived within a culture in that Jewish context and even early church context where we exalted our male members above our sisters, where people actually went around and says, look, I'm not only Jewish, but I'm circumcised. If you're a woman in that culture, you couldn't necessarily be circumcised. So we automatically made the man higher than the woman. And I think it's interesting that Paul says, we got to clear that up. But then the second part about the circumcision is that not only did we separate even the women who believed, but we separated ourselves from the world. We were so proud as to how we're distinct by God. We were so proud that we were God's chosen people and we forgot that it's not about us. It's about the world. God saved you so you can help him save your world. And so when you go back to the circumcision, what's interesting, Paul has a tongue in cheek here that it's easy to miss. And what he's saying is that you make fun of the atheists, right? You make fun of the people who don't have God. You make fun of people who create their own gods, right? But yet you exalt what you've created, which is circumcision. You exalt what you do with your hands more than what you do with your hearts. You exalt the males over the females, and all of them prove that you don't really belong. Because in God's family, we're not just one, we're forever equal. In God's family, we don't exalt anyone above the other because God believes we're all, the, not just the same, but we're all fully gifted, and we're all fully called, and we're all fully part of one another. So the work he's saying here is that if you want to believe, You have to be willing not to exalt the male among you in this culture, not to exalt the people who seem holier, but to exalt Jesus and Jesus alone. And so he continues then, and I think it's also interesting that he talks about this without God. And again, he's saying here, that you say they can't possibly belong because they make it about what they believe, what they can see, but you're doing the same thing. And then he moves us and say, but Christ, but Christ, And I think this is the beauty and why. So, the first half of the chapter explains our salvation and how we are far off, now brought near. But the second half talks about how Christ is our peace. And it's challenging because Paul says that in Christ, the peace that he brings destroys all walls or hostilities that's among us. It doesn't take much to look at our world and to see how we're defined by walls and hostilities. It doesn't take much to look in our own hearts to see how our relationships are defined by walls and hostilities. Perhaps, just perhaps, just maybe, we're not experiencing the peace of Christ because we have submitted to the hostilities of this world instead of letting our Christ help us destroy those walls. In Christ, The peace reconciles us into a new body. N.T. Wright talks about the the St. Lawrence River and, and how when and it, it's this big, big river and it, it combines with another river. And it, it's interesting because what he's saying, it, what's fascinating to me is that the river by the house where he lived in Ottawa was about a mile deep a mile long and, and it seemed really, really big until they got to the St. Lawrence River. And he says what's interesting is that when the river comes into the St. Lawrence, it just becomes the St. Lawrence River. And I thought about that because I live by the Susquehanna River, and I see these little things that come into the Susquehanna River and I don't think of them as the Susquehanna River. I don't even like the Susquehanna River, that's just me. right? It, looks a little too dirty. That's just me. But the point he's making is that the bigger one not only comes into the the smaller one, but it's not a swallowing up, but a new river that emerges. And we miss the significance of this because what Paul is saying is that you are always thought of as outsiders. You are always thought of as not belonging to Israel, not belonging to God. You have always been foreigners and strangers. But praise God, that in this new humanity, you're not strangers, you're not foreigners, you're God's children, you're citizens of heaven, you belong together. So Christ's peace not only destroys the hostilities, but it says all these things our world uses to keep us apart, Christ brings us together as one. Christ, our peace, gives us access to God by the Holy Spirit. Christ, our peace, makes us citizens in God's family. And I love how he describes this citizenship. He says there's four things here. One, we're built on the foundation of the apostles. This is why we come back to the scriptures. This is why we come back to the early church. This is why we come back to what God has said, what God has revealed. Because that is what we are built on. That's part of the foundation. So we live in a society and culture where it starts off with, I think, therefore I am. What God calls us to say is I have acted, I have revealed, I have shown who I am. Are you willing to submit to that? And that's the tension of where we are. I think therefore I am. I make my own decisions and maybe I'll find scripture to fit in. Or if this is what God has revealed am I willing to come under that? So you continue then he says yeah we're built on this foundation of God's story and how, it imply, how, how it's uh, implemented on us. But Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the one who holds us together. I remember years ago, I think it was before I was on staff, the first time I heard Pastor Woody says, sometimes I come up here, and I look at our congregation, and I said, only Jesus can hold us together. And I was like, man, that just sounds beautiful. That sounds great. Only Jesus can... But then he says, sometimes I come up and I say, oh my goodness, only Jesus can hold us together. And I was like, ah, that's what he's saying. The point of the cornerstone it's not just that it's how the building rests and rests together the point of the cornerstone isn't just Jesus at the center which is all important the point of the cornerstone is that every single rock every single person has a place in God's family but Jesus is the one who makes us at home Jesus is the one who holds us all together and then Paul says something that I think is very very important but also very very beautiful He has first spent the whole chapter saying, you think you're Jewish, and that's what makes you God's people. That's not it. That's not important. And if that wasn't important enough, he goes after the temple and you have to understand that the temple wasn't just a place that they worshiped, right? The temple was the crux of everything. The closest thing I could come up with the temple is what the black church used to be 50, 60 years ago. It was the theological center, yes, but it was also the political center. It was also the economical center. It was also the social center. Everything that we were in this country was found in the black church because that's the only place we felt that we can be ourselves. That's the only place we felt that we can be loved and accepted, that we had a God who actually sees us. And that's closer to the Jewish understanding of temple. So when Jesus comes in, he says, listen, you think the temple's important because that's where God rests and that's where heaven and earth meet. But I'm telling you, I'm greater than the temple because I am where heaven and earth meet. And so what Paul says now is that you think the temple's important and because you're outsiders, you might never be let in. Let me give you some news. And what is the news? But we are now built to be God's temple. And that sounds beautiful. That sounds amazing, until you realize it also comes with responsibility, meaning that when God looks at us, when the world looks at us, God says, you are where heaven and earth meet. You are who represent me to the world. You are who represents the political concerns, the theological concerns, the social concerns, the financial concerns, everything that the world needs. You have to be my representative, and you have to be my advocate. You have to be the place where I meet and touch them. If the world doesn't know God's love, it's more our fault than God's fault. If the world doesn't know that they belong, it's more our fault than God's fault. Because we have been created to be God's temple. We have been built up to be the place where God dwells. So as we think about peace, And we think about this peace that Jesus brings. I want us to be reminded that this peace isn't just the absence of conflict, or the absence of war, or the absence of turbulence. Or for some of us, if we're real, the 10 minutes a day we have the absence of anxiety. But the peace is what the Old Testament people called shalom. And what the New Testament people call Irene, right, which means Irene, but for some reason every time I say it makes, call, like that Come on Eileen song plays in my head, you're welcome take that with you. But this idea of God's peace isn't just so you can be free for you, it's that Christ has come that we who were once far can be made brought near. That Christ has come that this world which was destined to darkness can now know the light that Christ has come, that this world which was destined to death and separation from God can now be raised up in new life, that we can have peace with God, peace with world, peace with one another, peace with ourselves. And so the work of God's peace is that it's unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So if Jesus Christ destroys walls and hostilities, The peace of God is what inspires us, what motivates us, what empowers us to break down the walls and hostilities that we see. And the joy of this is that we don't have to do it by ourselves. There's a lot of big problems. There's a lot of big hostilities. You don't have to solve them by yourselves, but you get to work with them, with your God, with your church together as one. Peace is this idea of ethnos, right? Finding the true ethos. I I, I had too much fun with that one. Ethnos is this Greek idea of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language. And so what Paul is saying is that you have been so defined by what you look like, by what language you speak, by your socioeconomic status, by by where you fit in and by the world's definition, whether it's education or money, whether it's your citizenship, your passport, or, or, or your experiences that you've had. You've been so defined by your ethnos. But what is your true ethos? And in in Ephesians 1 10, he says, God has promised to unite all things under in heaven and on earth under Christ. So our true ethos is not losing our identity. It's not blending together as one and saying we're all colorblind, right? But it's saying that my story fits into God's story, that my people fits in with God's people. That my language is the language that the God of the world speaks also. That our differences are not meant to divide us, but that God sees it as the true beauty of his creation. Our ethnos is not meant to be our God. I love that I'm black. I love even more that I'm Liberian. But that can never matter more than being a Christian. That can never matter more than following Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. We've been identified by Jews and Gentiles and the Gentiles you break down into all the nations that you're from, let's celebrate that. But let's never make that our God because our God wants all of that together. Our God wants all of you together. And peace is this idea and the proof that Jesus the Jewish Messiah is actually God's promise for the world. And with that mindset, you see Abraham's promise anew. With that mindset, you see Isaiah's dream anew. With that mindset, you see John's revelation anew. That God has always desired the world. But I also think peace is finding home. We live in a world where it's easy to think for us here in North America, I don't want to say that everything's okay because I think that insults our intelligence. We know not everything's okay. But most of us are shielded and guarded by the fact that there's just as much war in our world right now than ever before. There's just as much people running from what they they were born into or their homes than ever before. There's refugees who are trying to come and there's countries who are so overwhelmed and and there's, there's so much going on where people feel not only alienated, but even the land they were born in, they can't find home there. And I think that reality is matched with our reality where there's so many of us who haven't truly found home. There's so many of us, whether we grew up in the church or not, we haven't found a place where we belong. We haven't found a place where we feel like citizens. I remember when I got my American citizenship, they asked me, are you willing to let go of your Liberian citizenship? This is being recorded. It's probably not smart to say this, but I said yes because I knew that a passport doesn't define who I am. But I also knew I have a cousin in the Liberian government, I gave my passport back. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is that when we live in a world, when we live in a world where people are trying to find home, where there's refugees running from wars, or people in our lives running from the demons they're fighting within, are we willing to be home for them? Are we willing to tell them they belong? Are we willing to say in God's kingdom, there's a seat for you and at the mansion in heaven, you don't have to wait for it because I have a seat at my table today. Peace is refugees finding home. Peace is us being the temple where God dwells. Peace is Christ being at home in us and through us. If you look at any survey, of ourselves as Americans in this pandemic, you will find we're more anxious than ever. We are more stressed than ever. We're sleeping less than ever. We're drinking more than probably ever. That one's hard to gauge because you can't really be like, are you drinking today? You know, that one's hard to gauge, but we're abusing substances more than ever. We're restless, peace, God's peace, is first knowing that God's presence and power can overcome. But it's also saying that if you're not anxious, there's a good chance you know someone who is. If you're not losing sleep, just looking at the numbers, just look at the person to your right and to the left, one of you are having trouble sleeping. If you are not feeling at home, not just in this country, but even greater than that, in your person or in your church, how can we be home to one another? Because if we're truly the temple that's being raised up, if we're truly where heaven meets earth, then we have to do a better job of being home to one another. Now, I don't have all the answers to anxiety or why we're not sleeping and all that. But I know and I want to end with three things that I think helps me. The first one is I have become intentional of meditating on God's past goodness. I have become intentional of remembering how God has been good to me. Because it's so hard, it's so hard to not be disillusioned, to not be frustrated, to not feel just, God, where are you? It's so hard to see everyone around you, not even everyone, but to see people suffer and struggle. It's so hard when their anxiety becomes your anxiety So I think the one thing that I've learned, or one of the three things I want to give you is be intentional about remembering God's goodness. For me, I'm always on my computer, so it's a list. You know, I think it's, um, Kara Musser has a, like, it seems to me like a million notebooks of thankfulness. Not all of us will be at that level, right? But all of us need something something that you intentionally look at. So it's not just you make the notes. It's like church notes, right? You take notes in church and you never look at it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a running list that you come back to to help you remember that God is not just with you, but God has worked in you, God has worked through you, God has been faithful to you. It can be praises, it can be anxieties, it can be everything, but put it on a piece of paper and come back to that paper or computer in my case and say, God, thank you for being good in the past. And hold on to that. The second one is to be committed to prayer. There's a study that came out that said it's impossible in the brain for anxiety and gratitude to exist. And when I first read that, I was just like, I will prove you that's not true. But the point the author was making is that our anxieties forces us to only look at what we're in. Our gratitude forces us to look at who has us to look up to who's carrying us, to look up to who's got us, whose power lives inside of us, who has been faithful to us. So it's not just you can't be grateful because you're anxious, but it's that if you're so anxious that it's paralyzing you, stop looking down and start looking up. Give thanks now in the present with your prayers. Yes, pray to God your anxieties, but give thanks to his faithfulness and give thanks that he's with you now. And then the last one, which I also think is really, really good for us to do, because a lot of times when you say stuff like this, people are just like, well, I just don't live an exotic life, you know? Like, I'm pretty, like, nine to five is not that big of a deal. I guarantee you, if you made a list of all the way God's been faithful to you, it will blow your mind. And it could be from, you know, not getting in an accident because someone cut you off or it can mean something that happened in your teenage years or your 20s or 30s. But God's faithfulness is for you, and it's to redeem you, but to help you remember. And this is what I want you to do for the third part, to help you hold on to it in the future. Maybe it wasn't something that God did to you. But remember, we're a community, we're a body, we're a family. Maybe it's something God did through you. Or maybe, just maybe, it's some way God was faithful to your sister. It's some way God was good to your brother. In some way, God was good to someone you loved. So if we're willing to remember God's faithfulness in the past, to meditate upon and give thanks to him now, to pray away our anxieties, and to remember how God's been faithful, not just to us, but to people around us, maybe, just maybe, Christ's peace will come. Christ's peace will dwell. Christ's peace will rest like to develop our worship team. We're going to close our service um, singing Away in the Manger. Um, at this time, I'd like to also invite any of the pastors in the room to come up. Uh, we'd love to pray for you, for anything you've got going on. But We want to pray specifically, and as we sing this song, we want to pray specifically that the God of peace, who gives us peace, may rest in us so that we can not only know peace ourselves, but that the world that we live in can know the peace of God through us. As well. Let's stand and sing together.